0: It's Monday, August 21st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist, I'm Mike Peska. The Russian spacecraft headed to the moon got there, but not in exactly the way the Russians had hoped for, as Reuters reports.
1: The Luna 25 spacecraft spun out of control and crashed into the moon after a problem preparing for
0: pre-landing orbit. Yes, that is a plain way to put it. Here's how the official Russian space agency did put it as reported by the BBC. In a statement, Roscosmos said the craft ceased to exist as a result of a collision with the surface of the moon. Russian security forces are blaming Ukrainian militia groups in the incident. No, no, they're not. Though I would suggest that when a country puts all of its aeronautic might behind developing kamikaze drones, they should maybe be extra careful to build in a specific non-kamikaze pass over the rest of their projectiles. Somewhere in Roscosmos, there's an engineer saying, Wait. You wanted it not to crash? What kind of maniac built a projectile not to crash? And I wonder, doesn't Putin kind of have, I don't know, a lot on his plate? Without space exploration? Did he have an unsent, use it or lose it billion dollars in the state coffers to blow on a moonshot? Far be it from me to tell Vladimir Putin how to conduct his business, but extractive industries, Burying the war dead, he is skilled at putting things into and out of the ground, not safely landing on it far, far away. Since the glories of Sputnik and Yuri Gagarin, the Russian space program has been moribund. The previous most ambitious project to get to one of the moons of Mars was called the Phobos Grunt. It stunk was supposed to take two years to travel to Mars, spent two months stuck in Earth's low orbit, then plummeted back down into the Pacific. Later reports blamed, among other failures, shoddy, perhaps counterfeit parts. And the shame of it all is this was 2011. Radio Shack was still open. The International Space Station is still in operation and still partly staffed with Russians and Americans and Japanese and Canadians and international astronauts, cosmonauts, what have you. The Russians had announced plans to leave after 2024 when they would be developing a space station of their own. But they are sticking with the ISS for now. I'd say it's one aspect of their space program that is not currently blowing up in their faces. On the show today, I build a house of bricks, or at least offer some ideas for new members of the Club of Economies outside the US, Japan, and the EU, And I also offer insight as to why so much of the BRICS experiment has landed with a thud. But first, Allie Griswold is the writer of the Oversharing Substack newsletter. She joins us to talk about the ride-sharing industry, like Uber who it seems is profitable, actually profitable for the first time ever. We talk about that, plus Uber's monopoly over the industry, it's paid for drivers, and if the future is good, Ali Griswold up next. Ride hailing company Uber has just posted a profit for the first time. Maybe you saw that headline. There are asterisks involved because if you've studied this or tried to invest in it or just read the headlines, you may recall wait a minute, didn't they have a profit, sort of a fake paper profit to satisfy some doubters a couple of years ago? Indeed, they did. But we are going to delve into the nature of their actual profit and the future of the company and the future of the, I'll say it, the space. I'm using jargon because I'm speaking with Allie Griswold. She writes the oversharing Substack newsletter. Allie Griswold, to me, is a journalist. According to her about page, she is a former journalist, but a leading expert on this space, the space being the sharing economy. Allie, welcome to the gist. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. They're really profitable or they're just showing a profit?
1: Yeah, they're really profitable. Um, The technical term is operating profit. But in layman's terms, it basically means that they made money on the basis of their actual operations versus the profits you were referring to in the past were influenced by investments that they had. So sort of they made a bunch of paper money on their investment, and then that carried over into making it look like they had a profit.
0: It was a live question, at least among a certain class of economists, maybe a left-leaning economist, if Uber would ever earn a profit. Uh, I have numerous columns by Dean Baker saying this. I'm looking at a Cory Doctorow uh, column. Uber still not profitable. He's calling what they do an effective wealth transfer from labor to capital. Was that From the people inside the industry, not the people maybe who are hoping they would be profitable, but really clear-eyed observers, was that a legitimate question? Is this company ever going to actually be profitable?
1: Yeah, I think it was totally a legitimate question. I mean, if you look at the history of Uber, especially the history for which we have financial statements, so since they became a public company, their net losses over the past 6 or so years have cleared 30 billion dollars. I mean, that's a that's a lot of money. That's not Amazon lost money for the first couple of years. That's that's the market cap of a serious company. And a lot of this was because the whole Uber model for its first decade plus of existence was to hyper subsidize the service it was offering you. So that's Uber rides were super cheap, right? Uber rides were cheap, drivers were getting big bonuses, everything was good, and that's because Uber was absorbing the cost of the service. So And
0: Uber could absorb the cost of the service because investors kept believing in Uber and they kept subsidizing it.
1: Exactly. Uber Uber told a good story. It had good growth. It had all the classic signs of a Silicon Valley success story. It had a, you know, Ambitious CEO and investors like that. They gave it a lot of money, it used that money to subsidize the service. And so I think when people, including me, would say, Will Uber ever be profitable? It was a question of Will Uber be able to break up with this business model? I mean, maybe for some people they thought it couldn't happen, but when I said it, what I meant more was Will Uber be able to wean itself from these subsidies? and charge the prices it needs to make this a profitable business, because that's not something we've seen it test yet.
0: Right. They've proved that a consumer will take uh, a ride for 50% of what a taxi would cost. Sure. They prove that.
1: Yeah. You give me a $20 bill for $10. Of course, I'm going to take that. Thanks to some (laughs) Silicon
0: Valley investors subsidizing it. Okay. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And that was such a truth of the whole 2010s of all these startups. It was just the predominant model. So I think there was a real question of when these companies charge the real price of their service. Will people still take it? Will the company be able to make money at the true cost of doing business?
0: Are they doing that now? Is it the true cost or is there still some subsidization going on?
1: I think it is the true cost now. I mean, all available data, which is mostly third party, shows that the price of an Uber in these services has increased a lot, especially since COVID. Obviously, everyone went through a difficult time during the pandemic, though for Uber, having the Eats food delivery business was a real you know, godsend for them. That was such a smart thing that they had set up earlier to carry them through that period. Right. And Not because
0: they saw a worldwide pandemic coming, but yeah. we can't blame them. There's no yeah, lab leak theory, market theory. Uber, had red a market theory Uber CFO
1: theory. and the CFO was like, "Hey guys, in five years, when the world closes right. down, we should be delivering McDonald's." A pangolin's <laughs> gonna have sex
0: with a bat. Follow me. Hear me out.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and so um, going back to your question, I just think for Uber, when you're looking at these ride prices, they've gone up something like forty percent over the past couple years and yeah so it is a very real increase I think uber has also been lucky because there's been such widespread inflation in the economy that it's sort of I don't want to say it softened the blow but it's made it less obvious that uber has hiked its prices so much because it's sort of been cushioned in the general price increase across all goods
0: mm mm-hmm. How much of their success is based on the strategy of destroying the competition? So they can subsidize their rides. People or drivers will no longer drive for cab companies. The price of a medallion, let's say, in New York, craters, thus destroying some cab company. It's not as if there are fewer cabs. It's just not as viable a business. And therefore, Uber doesn't have to really do much uh, other than say, hey, we're, we're still here, unlike our former viable competitors.
1: Yes, I think if you were to talk to economists on that point, a lot of people, well, a, a set of people would argue that Uber is in what we would call the recoupment phase of monopolistic behavior. And so to, again, put that in more general terms, if you think of Uber doing for the beginning of its history, what you just described, which is using investor money and resources to elbow out the competition, sort of steamroll taxis at the regulatory level, build itself into the network, all these things that we've seen it do. And now it is in the position of being quite dominant in a lot of markets And there is an argument that that is what has allowed it to successfully raise prices, still have people paying them. And if we're thinking in the way a monopoly behaves, that that is one path to it, right? You undercut the competition, you solidify your dominant position, and then you increase prices and you recoup your earlier losses.
0: How much does that fit what's actually happened with Uber? Because the number of yellow cabs in New York, the number of hailable cabs, Though it ebbed and flowed during the pandemic, there is a set number of licenses. They used to increase a little bit. Uh, I would argue it never met demand. They're still out there. You wrote a whole column about, hey, you haven't thought about this in a while, but I'm just going to try to hail a cab cab, a regular London cab and see what happens. They're still out there.
1: You know, some cabs are now hailable on Uber too. (laughs) And hilariously, because Uber has been partnering with taxis in their earnings report, they break out this category as hailables because I think it would be like too painful to admit that they're just straight up taxis.
0: But the point is they haven't actually, they may have decimated their competitors in certain ways, but just in terms of supply and demand, Uh, It's not like a store came in, had lower prices than the hardware store that was there for a generation. That mom and pop store is done, and now the new corporate hardware store jacked its prices 50%. The new hardware store might have had lower prices, now they have higher prices, but that old mom and pop is still there, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I think the thing that's always tricky about Uber, and as I'm sure you know, there's a lot of people in the Uber debate who are very polarized in their position, they either absolutely hate it, or they absolutely love it. And it's just more complicated than that. The reality is that Uber is a genuinely great service, right? You could, you could subsidize a service up the wazoo, but if it's not actually a good idea, it, it doesn't matter. People aren't going to use it, people don't want it. And people really like being able to order a cab from their phone because it's just so much better than the way taxis used to work. And that's a valuable contribution. That's that's a worthwhile business. And so what you're saying about competitors is, is true. They do still exist. They're in a weakened position. Um, Some of that was reform that needed to happen. The taxi industry is far from a perfect industry. It was a classic example that economists like to use of the perils of what's called regulatory capture, where things get over-regulated to the point that it's just benefiting an industry that sort of has control. Um, I think when we're thinking about Uber now, the thing that is of concern to both consumers and perhaps regulators is the degree with which uber is able to price discriminate and so i'll explain what i mean by that which is that you know we we all know about uber having dynamic pricing the price can change you know based on demand based on traffic and weather and all these things and in the old days when uber started they would just have surge and they'd give you a multiplier right so, you'd have to accept the multiplier and say, okay, I, I accept that it's 2.5x and I'm okay with that. And Uber said this is a great way to even out supply and demand, which again, theoretically, it is. It's classic econ 101. Um, now, and for a long time, Uber has replaced that with dynamic pricing. So, they don't tell you when there's surge, you don't know what the surge is. It's kind of always surging. And Uber, we know, uses sort of hyper-specific data about you and your travel patterns and where you live to charge you what it thinks you are willing to pay. And it has rolled that model out to drivers. So it uses similar data on individual drivers or profiles of drivers to pay them wages they are willing to work for. And so what Uber has done is essentially increase on both sides the margin it can take by charging more to people that think it will pay more and paying perhaps less to drivers it thinks will work for less. It increases its spread in the middle. And that's the sort of advanced, maybe monopolistic, certainly concerning tech behavior that I think is partly... An explanation for why it's been able to turn a profit, but also maybe an area of concern.
0: Okay, I under from a pure uh, economics point of view, I understand why that's extremely efficient. Can you tell me why that would be discriminatory in general to labor? Because I could imagine uh, how how price signals work is: you advertise for a job. If the job, if the quote is too low then people won't take the job. If the quote is really high, then the employer says, all right, we don't have to give $80 an hour, maybe at $60 an hour, and we'll get just as many good um, applicants. So why is it... So what I'm saying is, I suppose there are some drivers who might be being screwed by this model, but there are probably other drivers who, if it weren't for this model, wouldn't have had their hourly wage meet their needs. So why is it in general a thing to worry about or um, a, an example of, you know, rapacious capitalism per se?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what you said is true. And just to clarify, <laughs> I am not a lawyer or an economist. Um, Some of it, I think, is ultimately a philosophical debate, right? What you're sort of getting at is this values question of, do we as a society think that people who are performing the same task with the same time and input should get paid the same amount of money? Well, the answer is,
0: I mean, I guess (laughs) the answer is, well, if that amount of money is... $20 20 dollars an hour sure if the amount of money is 18 dollars an hour that's when it feels unfair if is the same amount the higher amount
1: yeah and um that's and again like i said it's with uber and these gig platforms it's always complicated mm-hmm. because a lot of people do really value the flexibility of gig work you know that that is a line from the companies. But it's also true. It's a reason why so many people do these jobs. And a lot of people do them because they are maybe supplementing another unstable earning stream. You know, it. If you, if you need to make your rent payment tomorrow, it's, a, again, it's amazing that you can go on to Uber, and you can drive and you can earn the money as sort of a one time top up. I think when it starts becoming, perhaps concerning is when people end up in this system, they don't have any predictability or reliability with their earnings, because there are so many fluctuations, it's so beholden to the algorithm, and the tweaks that Uber is perhaps making to that, it's bonuses, it's almost lottery like, I mean, again, that's, That's good if you really need to make money to hit a goal on a short time. But if you're trying to have stable financial planning, that could be very risky. Right.
0: So I guess a good way to judge it is what has Uber done to the wages or the hourly wages adjusted for inflation that cab drivers were making before Uber even entered the picture?
1: Yeah. So um, Uber says that they've gone up and they probably have. Uh, a, a big issue of course over the past year has been the price of fuel and uber among other companies has provided various levels of subsidies to try to help you know its workers out with those fuel costs um, it's just it's very hard to know these things on a granular level because again that's <laughs> sort of proprietary data that's held with uber What's more interesting is the Efforts we've seen in different cities and states to establish a wage floor for Uber drivers and other gig workers. So, the first one happened in New York City um, several years ago now, and they created a very clever wage floor where they essentially set a minimum wage for Uber drivers, but it was tied to the amount of time and work that those drivers have. Because if you think about it, the problem. The problem with trying to create a minimum wage for someone who's a gig worker is that they don't actually necessarily work an entire hour, right? Even if you're logged onto the Uber app, you might be waiting to get pings. So you might be logged on for an hour, but only be on a trip or assigned a rider for 50% of that time. And so the wage floor that they created in New York basically said, okay, Uber and other ride companies... You have to pay people at least this much an hour accounting for the share of time they're actually working. So if you're not giving them enough work, that's on you. And you're going to have to you know, pay in more because you've put too many drivers in the market. You've created a supply problem. And now it's not fair to these workers. Now, that had all sorts of downstream problems because... Again, if we're going to look at it from an economics perspective, what Uber, what Uber and gig companies create is an open market. So right, anyone who wants to work can sign on, they can go on an app, they can get a job, they can work. There aren't really any barriers. The problem with an open market is that there isn't necessarily enough work to go around, right?
0: Right. But the problem with a uh, closed market is there isn't necessarily enough supply to meet the demand of the consumer.
1: Yeah, totally. Or there are people who can't get any work, yes. right? They're just locked out. So, so there there is no perfect answer, right? In these things, because it's it's so rare that things or conditions are perfectly matched. And so, when New York rolled out this wage floor, all of a sudden Uber had to start limiting the amount of time that drivers could sign on to work because there were too many drivers and they weren't getting work. And all of a sudden, Uber was being penalized and having to pay them more. And then drivers got really mad, right? Because they're locked out of working. And it's just, it's complicated because Mm -hmm. these things are policy decisions, they're balances. It's like, You can't have a perfectly open market where everyone can work all the time.
0: So give me uh, some predictions as uh, comfortable as you are doing. So 2030, will Uber be the one service to rule them all?
1: Uh, Yes, I think. Will
0: the equivalent of yellow cabs still exist?
1: Yes, but they'll be. But yellow cabs will be more like, oh, it's so cool and retro to take a yellow cab.
0: Oh, it'll be like a pay phone was 10 years
1: yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Like they'll exist yeah, yeah. and they'll be functional, but there will be this yeah. novelty quality to it.
0: Allie Griswold of the Oversharing Sharing Substack. Thank you so much. Thank you. Over on Pesca Plus, the conversation continues as Ali talks about how Uber's biggest competitor, Lyft, is doing, how the bike sharing business is doing, and if scooters are a viable future in the ride sharing industry. Scooters, the future is scooters. I think perhaps by my intonation, you might know where that analysis is headed, but you can subscribe or upgrade at subscribe.mikepesca.com And now the spiel. I'm no material scientist. But if you want to expand a BRIC, where do you go? I don't know, maybe Denmark, they make Lego, seems obvious. But no, the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa are the BRICS I'm speaking of. Now, I thought BRICS was just economic shorthand, a cute little acronym for emerging markets, the biggest countries in the emerging markets, the five most promising economies, and indeed, it was for a while. I mean, that's how it started. Jim O'Neill, former chair at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, dubbed the bricks the bricks. He's now a member of the House of Lords. And he looked at this quintet of emerging markets and said, well, we've got China and some other laggards. Uh, the only reason why the group is that interesting, frankly, is because, of course, China. Um, China of the four countries that I um thought should be in the acronym um didn't include south africa as you said in as jen said in a report initially um china is the only one that uh has grown more than any of the assumptions we ever made you can hear his displeasure at south africa which turned brick his formulation into bricks it is also the rare form of a plural being triggered when four becomes five but now bricks aren't just a catchy or weighty acronym. They are a bonafide international organization. They've got an office and letterhead and everything. The BRICS Summit is occurring now, and these five countries representing 40% of the world's population and 25% of the world's economic output are considering an expansion. For years, South Korea and Mexico have been mentioned. Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, has endorsed Saudi Arabia as potential members. Algeria and Egypt are also said to be under consideration, serious consideration as well. You can see why Ramaphosa is endorsing expansion, because his country, South Africa, it doesn't make much sense as one of these five nations, not really in economic terms. There are more than a dozen countries in the developing world or global south as it's now called that have higher GDPs than South Africa and that's even if you don't count Singapore, or Taiwan which China would never let join none of the other BRICs countries recognize Taiwan as a country anyway. So you take all of this into account, and I say it'd be cool if countries like Egypt or Algeria were allowed in because you need some vowels to make the inclusion of the consonant countries viable for future acronyms. I mean, you could add Korea, actually the wealthiest country not in BRICS, and you could turn BRICS into BRICS, the actual proper spelling of BRICS, B-R-I-C-K-S. That is a temptation. Or, you know, let's mess around a little bit. You let in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Algeria, and you have a new group called Ascribes. You add Algeria and Mexico, kick out Brazil, and you have racism, which would not be great. It would maybe accurately be an acronym describing what it took to create the acronym, but it would not be great. But also not great is what's going on with the R in BRICS, as CNN reports. The 15th annual BRICS Summit is set for this week in Johannesburg, but it's who won't be there that is getting a lion's share of attention. The heads of state of China, India, Brazil, and South Africa are set to attend, along with 30 African leaders. But Russian President Vladimir Putin won't be there in person because the International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for him. Okay, would be a shame if Russia were to exit the BRICS alliance, but without them, and with the addition of Saudi Arabia, Algeria, and Egypt, the economic bloc would form scabies. But man, you know, Putin's definitely going to make this point. Look, if you guys kick out Russia, you will get scabies. The thing is, none of these acronyms even make sense in the language of the actual countries, which tells you something about who still holds the power in the world, cultural, economic, institutional. brick was named as you just heard there by a guy who'd go on to be a member of britain's house of lords and except for china that guy regards the economic progress of all the other countries as less than interesting and he's right what is China doing with these countries whose GDP is 4% of China? That's the tiny portion that South Africa's economy represents. Remember when I talked about that 25% of the world's economy stat of, among these countries? It's almost all China. 18.5% of the 25% is China. What does China really get out of bricks or a scribe, scabies, or other mega bricks? Well, I mean, there's distrust and displeasure at the U.S. and the EU's dominance of the world financial bodies and the financial markets. So that's an opening. But the world also has a lot of displeasure and unease about what China has done. I mean, India is the eye in bricks. They're just flat out hostile to China. And other BRICS countries have serious flaws. Russia does have wealth and resources but also a pariah status it faces sanctions and that hinders the development of the long talked of but never implemented BRICS bank. All the other countries haven't had anything close to China's expansion and even China is now no longer rapidly expanding as it once was. Here's a Reuters article. It conveys conveys this quote from a potential new member, quote, Argentina has insistently called for reconfiguration of the international financial architecture. Okay, great. So they're going to let in Argentina. They've got 116% inflation. Who else would you take as a member? Same Reuters article talking about Iran wants to join, Venezuela wants to join, quotes Ramon Lobo, former finance minister and central bank governor of Venezuela, saying other international frameworks existing on a global level are blinded by the hegemonic vision pushed by the U.S. government. Great point. But they're Venezuela. What are they going to let Venezuela in? You are not going to bolster the economic power of any group of countries or reasonably wealthy individuals if you let in Venezuela. The world, that's not the US, does not like the economic clout of the US. Doesn't love that the US and Europe dominates international bodies like the IMF and the World Bank. But the alternative, China, also causes unease among all partners and potential partners. And there's just not the strong case, except in a hypothetical sense, that all these economies of the developed world would achieve unity that helped each other, as opposed to just squabbled among themselves to try to pursue their individual interests. Basically, BRICS, good acronym, and little else, and not even a very good acronym, I mean, you could get Algeria, Argentina, Russia, the Dominican Republic, Vietnam, Angola, Rwanda, and Korea, get them together, form an alliance, call it the Aardvark nations. And that would make just about as much sense or have as much impact as BRICS does as an entity. Aardvark could have a cool logo, however, I'm thinking like a dragon holding a bear in one talon and a copy bar in another. We're Aardvark. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is Chief Artvark Officer of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libson's Advertise Cast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the gist. Umpero Peru do Peru Thanks for listening.
1: A-A-R-D-V-A-R-K. A-A-R-D-V-A-R-K.